It's good to see everybody here today. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and uh, we are going to begin a, uh, a study on the church, if you haven't already seen or heard. Uh, we are, uh, we've done, finished, we've done, finished. I've been in Alabama. <laughs> we, we've, we've finished uh, our study on being blessed, hashtag blessed, and uh, now moving into this study. I've, I've been uh, burdened with this for uh, months, uh, and that's a hard thing to do to continue to have uh, what you feel like God is wanting you to preach, and then what do you want you to preach next? Um, because this, this subject is, just like the video said, now is our time. Now is the time that God has put us on this earth, and we have an opportunity. And the, the, the window of opportunity that we have is very small. And I think sometimes we go about our lives like we think we have a larger window of opportunity as the church on this earth than we actually do. And, uh, you know, I, um, I was thinking of the book of Acts and the church and us being the church and acting like the church. And uh, it's been said before, you, maybe you've said it, maybe it's been said to you. Uh, I'm not going to point out any genders for the men specifically, uh, to act your age. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not gender specific to guys whenever you hear the word or hear the words, act your age. Or maybe you have the question, uh, how old are you anyways? And, and again, then act like it, you know. Um, oftentimes it's through trials, it's through uh, struggles, it's through defeats, pressures, persecutions, uh, or even correction. Tough times, negative times uh, that we're faced with a challenge like that or the, or the rebuke act like it. Again, maybe it's not necessarily an age thing. Maybe it's even a, a job thing or a position thing. At your job, you're supposed to do this, or you're supposed to have this responsibility. And, and when someone's not performing in their job like that, again, the question may be coming up, then, you know, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you performing? Why aren't you being who you're supposed to be? And so in our context this morning, with that kind of in mind, when you think about the group, a body of believers, Christians, specifically not being or, or, or doing everything that we were called to do, I think that we've got to challenge ourselves with the same exact questions. Are we who we're being, are we, are we acting like, are we living like who God has called us to be, especially in this end time? And, you know, this is something that's not new, but each pivotal point in history for the church, uh, there's been great opposition and, and at times seemingly defeat of the church itself. There's been an attack, there's been a war, both without and within. And I, you know, I look at the landscape of Christianity today, and, and sometimes we can get in our little bubble uh, of, of Christianity and, and not realize how divided believers are, even on subjects that are just prevalent in our society today. I mean, I, I would hope that most of us in this room, because we study the Word of God together, we're in a local assembly, that, that we would come down on the same exact issues, biblically speaking, uh, regarding what sin is and what sin, uh, you know, what, what God says about it. Uh, but in the church today, there's great divides uh, over many things. And, and so I, I want us to understand that I believe we're facing a similar attack both without and within uh, the body of Christ and inside this local body. And uh, the attack that's waged usually is against God himself or, or of course, the people of God uh, and even the Word of God. 
and that may not be anything crazy or new, but we know throughout history men have tried to kill off the church. Even going back to Nero, uh, he would uh, kill Christians, and then he would put their bodies on stakes, and then he would set them on fire as they lined the streets of Rome to be streetlights. That's crazy. If you're a Christian, that's some of the things they face. They face not only that, being burned after they're dead, but being burned alive at the stake. They, they faced, um, uh, you know, even today we have brothers and sisters around the world being martyred and being persecuted. But each time this has happened, the church experiences great growth afterwards. It's almost like a, a pruning. It's almost like when, when you try to cut something back, it comes back even fuller. And, and that's exactly what the church has done throughout history. You can even look into communist China, one of the, the, the most severe places for persecution in the world for Christians. And it's not well known because, again, the type of country it is, but it's very clear that there is a great persecution against Christians in China. And you know, one of the fastest and growing and most thriving churches in the world today exists in China. So men have tried to destroy the church, again, have tried to destroy the Bible isn't it interesting just in our own country in the last several weeks, we've even seen burning of Bibles here? Isn't that interesting? And amidst everything that's going on, why is it that Bibles are being burned? It's interesting. But again, this has been something that's been a physical attack, but also a philosophical attack. We need to get rid of this. And again, only to see the growth of God, His Word, and the church uh, result in that. You know, Spurgeon said this, I'll put it in the notes as well and on the screen. He said, never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the blood spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. That doesn't seem like a very uh, a, a glamorous Christian, uh, American version of Christianity. It doesn't seem like that's what we all are maybe hoping for that we would experience in this world or in, in, in our country because of the freedom that we've so enjoyed all of our life. But the, the history of the church proves that it's only through great suffering and even death that the church thrives beyond the natural and shows up in what man defines as the supernatural. Again, it's not very enticing to the flesh. It's not very uh, exciting to think about, again, but it's a spiritual reality regardless. Now, I want to say this. It doesn't mean that as Christians in America, we go around looking for ways to be martyred or to be persecuted, but I believe that we're, we're missing some things. I believe, like John Fox, he said this in the book of Martyrs, speaking of early persecutions in the church, he said, but Though persecuting malice raged, yet the gospel shone with resplendent brightness and firm as an impregnable rock withstood the attacks of its boisterous enemies with success. And so I believe that if we today, if this is our time and we're actually going to be the church, then what is going to result if we live out our lives the way that Jesus has actually called us to live it out in this world, even in America, that we are going to be facing a level of persecution that other Americans don't necessarily face. 
The first persecution began with the passion of Jesus himself. That, that struggle, that, that, that week that led up, of course, to his, his crucifixion. We know the persecution rages today, as I said a while ago, even in China. There are areas even in America that it, that it happens. But I, what I want to do is I want to take a walk through the book of Acts uh, for however many weeks the Lord wants us to do this and see and really evaluate the men and women that are in that first church, that face this, this, great, this first great assault against the church, against God's bride. And I want to look at how they responded. I, I want to see the lessons that we can glean. I want to also see uh, some, some truths about the church specifically this morning that we see right off the bat. I want to see what they were doing at the time. I want to see what they did in the aftermath of the persecution they faced. I want to see this, again, in the face of this great distress and persecution, the challenge to their faith, how they lived. And I think that we could go back in different times in the church. We could go under different rulers and emperors and see the great persecutions that Christians face around the world under those different rulers. But I think that we can draw our best lessons from the Word of God itself. And so this first and greatest attack against the church, I believe, uh, is going to see and going to show us, we're going to see and it's going to show us the force behind everything. And again, I believe at this point in America, we're facing a different kind of attack. You'll be seen maybe in, in some similar ways than the first church did, but there, there's a little bit of a different one. Our attack is coming in many ways through legislation and also through culture. And again, it's similar to the first church in, in some ways, as I said. But think about this. Even in California, there's a battle legislatively for churches to even meet to worship God in America. There's, there's legislation in California saying you're forbidden from doing this. Now, we know that in Texas, we had the recommendations that we would not gather in person but it was never forbidden. At first, they try to come out and say, you, you, you can't meet more than this, and you can't do this. And, and, and we had to read kind of through the fine print, and we kind of discern what was being said. And, and we willingly, as a church, said, you know what? We're going to do our part to minimize the curve, the immediate impact of what was going on to this new thing that we are facing. But in California still today, they're facing a law that says you are forbidden to gather. They're, they're not, not just gather, but you're forbidden to sing out loud to the God that you serve and worship. There's a law. There's a, there's a, a pastor in North Valley, North Valley Baptist Church, and uh, this, this pastor has, has been on social media, has been on different uh, outlets, and he's, he's gone out and said that their church has incurred tens of thousands of dollars worth of fines just because they have gathered to worship their God, which the Constitution guarantees them the freedom to do. But they are, they're being fined, and not only being fined, but they are being harassed even by the government. The, the, the mayor, I believe, of, of the city that they're in said this, we'll let you go ahead and gather, but you have to do it outside. And you can't gather in groups of more than 60. And you can't sing. Think about this. Th think about, again, this is America, and yet this is what the church is facing. Think about all of the other things that are allowed to go on, even businesses, even with masks. But they're saying to the church, no, you can't do that. Again, there's different types of attacks other than that. 
philosophies, economic pressures, and a superfluous culture. You say, what are you talking about? We live as Christians in a very excessive culture where more is better. We all are, are, are in that world uh, in America that more is better. And so we, 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 we're constantly attacked by the enemy with this whole idea that we've got to live in this world according to the world's standards versus living to the call of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And again, this pressure is coming from a godless culture. There are those even in America that want us dead, Christians. Some literally, and of course some figuratively. They want the church just not to be any type of thing in America. And sadly, there are some that claim to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, whose lives would be unchanged if the church went away. I want to say that again. It's sad. It's a sad truth that there are some that claim to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, whose lives would be unchanged if the church just stopped gathering and stopped serving and stopped being on mission. The question I want to ask Trinity Baptist Temple Church is this. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? It may be not our lives right now, our physical lives right now on the line, but how are we going to respond to such calculated and stealthy attacks by the enemy? And what if it does get worse? Are we going to be like the, the, the video said, is it, is it our time? Are we going to rise up? Will we press on? Will we follow in the footsteps of the church before us, our spiritual ancestors? Or are we going to just simply seek the comfort of the boat that's floating down the river of complacency, leading to defeat, with no blood sprayed on our deck, just comfortable sailing, with spiritual apathy growing every passing minute? I don't know about you, but I want to press on, and I don't want that. I don't want to become more complacent. I don't want to be headed down a, 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 a stream of defeat. I, I don't want any of those things. I want to see God do the miraculous in our church and through our church. I, I want to be a part of something that is beyond us, not for any selfish reason, but if, if this is who we are, which we're going to see in just a second, then I want to see everything that God has called us to do and everything that God is capable of doing. But it's going to take a certain type of heart, it's going to take a certain type of character, and it's going to take a certain type of commitment, and a certain type of action. And so what does the church even mean? What, is it, what does it even mean to be a church? The word in the Greek is ekklesia, formed from two words, ek, out of, and klesia is, or klesias is uh, called out. So called out of and to something. It's also a gathering. And so the, 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 the Greeks even used this when they would assemble. It was something that was understood that when you said ecclesia, when you said what we say today, the church, it was a distinct group that was gathered together. That's, that's something very important for us to note because there are some, some people today that question that and attack that. And we're going to see that in just a second. But I want to dig in and see what God did in this first church. And, and, and again, God in the flesh just left this church only to face some of the same things that he just endured. Acts chapter 1, the former treaties I have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. 
I want to just stop there and remind you if you don't know this already, but the writer of the book of Acts is Luke. Luke uh, is addressing, as he did in his gospel account, the gospel of Luke, Theophilus. Now, this, this is something important or, or not important, interesting, I think, to, to point out. Theophilus, some people say that maybe is, is a generalization of somebody, but it could quite possibly be a person of authority, an actual person with this name, maybe in Rome, maybe in Athens. They weren't 100% sure. He could, be, he could have been uh, Luke's publisher, if you will. Um, but either way, the meaning of this man's name means beloved by God. And this is, this is something interesting, uh, possibly a friend of God. But Luke is addressing him, giving him this account that's beyond his first account in the Gospel of Luke. And that's so important because Luke is a doctor. And Luke was documenting what he had been told happened in, 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 in Jesus' life and ministry. And so now he's, he's furthering what happened in the book of Acts. If you look in Luke chapter 24, the last thing that you see in Luke chapter 24, the very last verse, is that Jesus ascends, his disciples return to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. They were continually in the temple praising God. Again, as I said a while ago, some people argue that the gathering of God's people isn't important. And I, I want to say as, as a pastor during this time of whatever we want to call it, Rona, pandemic, whatever. During this time, one of the first things that, this, this is what I observed. We, we, we shut everything down and went online only. It was something that there were several people frustrated at. I think some people saw it as kind of a, a break from church. And then what happened is in the, the following weeks, there were those, I believe, a part of the Church of Jesus Christ who began to long for the community, for the fellowship that only exists within the body of Christ. And we hated being apart. We couldn't wait to get back into to, to actual fellowship with each other, into to community, the way that the Holy Spirit has, has designed us to be in. But then there were some that enjoyed that time away, apart, separated, divided. And I, and I began to see as, as we began to even come back together that there, there were some that really, really, really wanted to take advantage of being apart and being separate. And to me, that's heartbreaking because the gathering of God's people is vital. It always has been. Even before Jesus set up his church on this, on this earth, it, it was God's people, the Jews, that he would assemble together, even in the tabernacle, even before the tabernacle. God has always called his people into assembly. And again, it's something vital. It's not about me. It's not about you. We're going to see in just a second why. Now, some people have been questioning the command itself. I, I saw a YouTube video today that there's a, there's a very prominent pastor in Atlanta that is not going to hold in-person worship services until the beginning of the year, 2021. They're just not going to do it. And there's a pastor on the opposite coast 
who is facing persecution from the government that said, we're going to gather because God's commanded us to gather and it's essential for us to gather and it's necessary for us to do this. And those two have differing opinions and, and the pastor who said that we're not going to gather, his argument was this, it's not commanded in Scripture that the church gather together. Which is interesting because as I said in the very beginning, the word church itself <laughs> means a calling out of to something, someone, which is Christ, and to gather together in that way. And so an assembly, a gathering, that, that's, that's what it means, being called out of to something. So to say that the church isn't commanded is to say that the very name doesn't, doesn't even need to be used. We need to call it something else other than a church. We'll see a little bit more of that later. But he goes on to refresh the account of the ascension and explain the following events in verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up after that through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days. This is Jesus. After he was resurrected, was seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And I want to stop right there and just preach for just a second. Um, because this is a truth. We submit and we serve a risen Savior. We, we submit our lives to and we serve a risen Savior. He's alive. The Bible says there were many infallible proofs that were manifested to the apostles, but also to many others. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that there were over 500 that he revealed himself to in those 40 days. Jesus is alive. And, and, and there's not a, a dead God. There's not a, a, an idea that we're following. There is a real, alive God that we are submitted to and that we're serving. This is us, the church. That, that, that's us. It's indisputable. One of the great attacks, though, on our faith, one of the great attacks on, on Christianity today is the fact that Jesus is God. One of the things that is, is questioned that would disprove that he is God is the resurrection. And again, Luke is saying, here's the reality. He was seen alive in many infallible proofs. It was known that he was risen from the grave. But still today, 2,000 years later, the question still remains in some people's hearts and minds if Jesus is actually God. So point number one, the very most important point for us as Christians, as the church, is this. Jesus is God, he is alive, and he's the chief cornerstone of the church. That is vital, that is, that is the, 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 the bedrock of, of Christianity, is Jesus is God, he is alive, and he is what the church is all about. He's the chief cornerstone, the head, the centerpiece, the central figure. He is the one. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, Paul's talking to believers, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Listen, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, all these words about the church, the body, together, 
grows into a holy temple in, in the Lord. In Him, Jesus, you also are being built, there it is again, together, not separately, not divided, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul would also tell the Corinthians that they individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but he, was all, he would also tell the church that they are collectively the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, as individuals, you, if, you have the, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But you are not just an individual temple of the Holy Spirit. You are also a collective member, body part of a local assembly, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 1, he's the head of the body, Jesus, the church. The body is the church. He is the beginning. In other words, he's over everything. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might have authority, that he might have supremacy, that he might be over everything. He is the head of the body. This is all vital. Again, he raised himself from the dead. No one did it. No one took his life. He said that in John chapter 10, no man taketh my life, but I lay it down myself, and I have the power to lay it down, power to take it up again. Uh, I mentioned a few kinds of, of attacks that the church has faced in the, in the introduction, but science is another attack on our faith today. Science is seeking to eliminate the logic of God. There can't be God because you have to leave reason to believe that there is a God. And that's, that's absolutely the opposite of what's true. You have to leave reason to believe that there is not a God. But science cannot accept the fact of, of God because then they would have to re release their love of sin and self and pride. Science has successfully cloned life. Even today, they're manufacturing synthetic hormones to try to alter it. They've learned how to manipulate DNA, food and humans. There, there's all kinds of things that's going on with this genetic code that's out there. And what's interesting is this, this, the truth is this. They're going off a blueprint, right? Science, they're synthesizing and they're, they're making different proteins and, and, and hormones. And they're trying to do different things to manipulate genetic code. But if you think about that, what in the world would they be doing if they didn't have the code? What if they didn't have the blueprint to know? It's kind of like that, that old thing you say where the, the scientist, the atheist, went, stood before God and said, hey, we've successfully cloned a human, so there's no more need for you. And God said, oh, you have? Well, well show me how you do it. Show me how you, how you can make a human. And, and, and the atheist reaches down and starts to grab the dirt just like God did. And God says, no, 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 no. You get your own dirt. But that's exactly what science is, it has done, is, is they're going off a blueprint, and they're saying, now we can figure out how this works, and now, just like a computer programmer, and, and we can make this, and we can manipulate this. But it's all about the code and the blueprint that already exists. It's already there. They couldn't do anything without that blueprint. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or Ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. 
God is the source. He's the architect. He's the creator. And our God is real. He's alive. And he's seeking those to follow him with complete abandon today, no matter what the circumstances are, just as he did in our text. And I want to say, if you've done that already, if you've submitted your life and you're following Jesus Christ, praise God. But I want to ask you to evaluate this morning who or what you're devoted first to above all. If you say, I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ, I'm a child of God, I'm a born-again believer, there's no doubt in my mind, and I, I want to ask you, are you 100% devoted to Christ above all? It's so easy to, to have that self-righteous answer. We can all be guilty of it and saying, yes, I'm devoted to Christ above all, but let's really evaluate whether we are or not this morning. Because if we're not, if we're more, maybe, maybe we have more devotion to our, ourself or, or to our family, or maybe even to our job, or other things that are in our life. Maybe, maybe we really evaluate what we're putting our passion and energy and effort into, and, and, and what really drives us, what really gets us excited. And if we do an evaluation of that, and it's not Jesus Christ above all, and I think that you've got to address that before we can receive anything else through this study or what God even wants to do in your life. We've got to know this, church. This is something we've got to know. That we are a part, if you're a Christian, you're a part of the only group of people that will be together forever. I played on sports teams, and I'm no longer a part of those teams. I've been a part of other groups, no longer a part of them. I'm a part of groups right now. But there's no other group that exists on the earth that will exist forevermore other than the church of Jesus Christ. Show me what's more important than that. Show me what is more important than something that is eternal. Jesus said there's nothing more important than the eternal. He's the most important. So we're a part of the only team, the only family that will never be destroyed, and it's because of Jesus. If we're not motivated by that, if you're not, if you're not motivated by the risen Lord to assemble, to, to unify, and to live on mission for Him, committed to Him above all, then is He really our Lord? If, 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 if we are not committed to Christ above all, then is He really our Lord? These first disciples were devoted to Christ first and above all. We know that they weren't sinless. But this was vital for them to say, I don't care what I face. I don't care what I go through. I don't care how I feel. I don't care what my body feels like, what my mind feels like. I don't care about any of those things. They knew Jesus was alive. They had submitted their lives to him. And that drove everything in their life. Everything they would face, everything that they would go through, what drove them is the fact that Jesus was God and that he was alive. And he was what the church was about. That's what drove them. And so verse, uh, verse 4 says this, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart to Jerusalem, this is Jesus, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. It's going to happen soon. When they therefore were, were come, which is interesting, right? Because Jesus could have told them, in seven days, this is what's going to happen. He could have told them, in three days, this is going to happen. He could have told them in a month from now. This is what's going to happen. But he didn't tell him. He said, it's going to happen, 
and it's not going to be many days from now. Same, similar to what we'll, we'll see in just a second when he says that he's going to return. No man knows the hour of the day. We just know he's going to do it because he's always kept his word. So verse 6, when they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Is this what you're going to do? Because again, remember, they thought that was going to happen on his first return. And he said, hey, I've got a new kingdom. And so in their minds, they were still thinking, is this when it's going to happen that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the season which the Father hath put in his own power. So get this, the, the command was to, to wait for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Up until this point, God himself was physically with them in the flesh. And he told them to tarry, to wait, until the presence and the power was with them in a different administration. The administration of the Holy Spirit versus the administration of Jesus, God in the flesh. They were immersed, the Bible says. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. But before that, day in and day out, they were immersed in the presence of God physically. And he told them, don't do anything. Don't move until my presence is with you again. Don't, don't do anything. I know you may be supercharged, super spiritually charged. I know that you may have good intentions, but you don't do anything until you are baptized in the Spirit. And this makes me question. Please listen. How much of our movement today is without the presence and the power of God? So you know enough scripture and you hear enough spiritual rhetoric, you can make almost anything that you want to do sound spiritual. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's spirit-led. Do we ever move before God says move? I know I have. You mess it up every time. I mean, God gives grace, and sometimes he shows you, even though he works something out, when you move before he tells you to move, like, he gives you that grace, he gives you that mercy, and you look back, and you're like, oh, my goodness. God helping me out again all the time. And do we wait when he says to move? which is sometimes what we do as well. well. I just, I don't know if I want to commit to doing this for the Lord. I don't know if I want to do this because, you know, I, God's saying, do it, do it. Be faithful, be committed, serve in that ministry, help those people out, do this, do that. I'm like, oh, I just, I'm just kind of waiting on the Lord. No, God is telling you, he's pushing you. Sometimes we want to wait when, he's God, when God's moving. I mean, some people ask that question, but here's my struggle. How do we know for sure when the Spirit is leading us? How do I know when, when the Spirit is wanting me to move or when the Spirit is wanting me to wait? We're going to find out what the disciples were doing when they knew for sure that it was God. I'll give you a hint. It started with them obeying what he told them to do, first of all. And it also had to do with them praying together, not being lone rangers about it. That's just a hint, though. Verse 8, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And here it is, the final great command of the Lord, the great commission as we call it. 
Jesus gave this clear command and mission to the church is point number two. Sometimes people wonder what the church is about. Is it about a kids' ministry? Is it about a youth ministry? Is it about, uh, you know, different things and, and, and all these kind of ideas that, you know, is, what is, is the church just about the worship services that it gathers together and, and has? What is the church? Listen, Jesus gave a clear command and a clear mission to the church. He did it very clearly so that there would be no confusion or no mistake about what we're supposed to be about. He tells them once they receive power from the Holy Ghost, they shall be. Not hopefully be, you know, we, we kind of use that word shall sometimes as a, as, as a presumption. Uh, that shall be, you know, maybe, maybe that shall be the case. No, 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 no. Shall be is an imperative. It, you will be witnesses. You are commanded to be my witnesses. You've heard the formula before to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the most part of the world. But the question is this, how personal have we made it to us? How personal is this mission, this command to you? A challenging question that God presented me and I've presented it to our church in years past is this. Have we made sure that the convenient commission is fulfilled or that the great commission is fulfilled? See, we can, we can do what's convenient for us and call it good and miss what God has commanded us to do. I don't want to do that. The convenient commission is comprised of those areas of witnessing that are convenient. I give to missions. That's good. That's important. I give a love offering whenever there's a need. Good. I serve at outreach events. That's good. I can go make a visit in the hospital. Amen. That's good. I'll even hand out tracts. Amen. If all of that is convenient, is it fulfilling the Great Commission? Because he said in Jerusalem, right there, your, your hometown, familiar. But then all Judea. But then he said Samaria. The area of Samaria to the Jews was like, ugh, I don't even want to look at it. You know, get it away. I don't, I don't even want to go through there. Even Jesus going to the woman at the well, she says, how is it that you're a Jew sitting down with me here and you're, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Samaritan. Jews have no dealings with them. And there was bad blood there. But Samaria was no bueno. It was no good. It was, it was not something the Jews were supposed to be a part of. But Jesus said, go even to Samaria. Go even to where it's inconvenient, where you don't want to go. Be a witness. Be a, 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 a representative and ambassador even when it's not convenient. The disciples took this seriously. They ensured that they reached even the hard places. And we'll eventually get there in the study in Acts chapter 8 is one of those times that says that they had preached and testified the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. They couldn't imagine it before, but now under the command of Christ, they did. Acts chapter 9, churches had rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. There were churches there. It may not be send a little money, give a love offering, 
make a visit, knock a door? What if it means you surrendering everything? What if it means you surrendering to be a missionary or full-time ministry? Our, our Samaria is not to be forsaken just because it's hard or inconvenient. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are members of his church. We've given up every right. We've given up every bit of control of our life. That's what being a child of God, that's what being a follower of Jesus, that's what being a born again, transformed believer is. I no longer direct my life. I no longer control my life. I no longer am after what I want. I am all about his mission and his command. It's not just for the pastor. It's not just for full-time ministry. It is for every church member. Well, God, what if God is calling you to more? What if he's challenging you to serve him, to give more, to go further? Verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up in a cloud and received them out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as they went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, The men of Galilee, why you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up for you into heaven, shall come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Praise God. Just as the resurrection account, we see two angels telling these guys what was going on. And this makes me think, when we have those spiritual questions like, what just happened? Well, what, what is... What did we just see? What did, what did God just do? Wouldn't it be nice to have two angels show up? <laughs> just to verify, yep, that's what you just saw. <laughs> that's exactly what God just did. That would be awesome. But the truth is this. Number three, Jesus is returning for his church. And he's returning for judgment too. We saw this recently. That he's coming again. And there's going to be judgment on this earth. He's coming to judge. There's going to be a great white throne. We saw that just last week. But make no mistake, just as he rose from the grave, just as he ascended in, into, into the clouds, he's going to return in the same manner. See, this, this is our call to urgency, in which we should be living in light of what's going on in our world today. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive myself that where I am, there you may be also. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, said, but Lord, how, how, how are we going to know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no one that comes to the Father but by me. Not through any work, not through anything or anyone else can we obtain fellowship with God except for through Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're hoping that your good works are going to deliver you, Jesus says, he's the way, not your good works. He's the truth, not, not what's relative in the world today or even relative among Christianity. He is the truth. And he is the life. It's not found in any job or any money or any fame or any status. It's not found in it. He is the life. Our faith is in Christ alone for salvation. It's placed in him. And if it's placed in him alone, then the promise of his return is a monumental promise. He's not going to leave us here forever. Listen, that's, that's what was driving those first believers. They saw the death. They saw the resurrection. They saw him ascend. 
He said, do this. They said, yes, sir. We said, but if I saw that, I would too. Look, you do see it. If you have eyes to hear, I mean, eyes, eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear, that would be really weird if your eyes could hear. But eyes to see and ears to hear. Wow. Jesus gave that promise 2,000 years ago. Those first believers lived like they believed it. He said, I'm coming quickly. Behold, I come quickly, he said. If that's the case, and they lived like that 2,000 years ago, us at the end, how should we be living with so much more urgency? If we really have placed our faith in him, and we really believe what he says in his word, then we should be living with more passion than the first church. And the question is, are we? The last point is this, verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. What happened? Jesus said, go and wait for me. You know what they did? The very first thing they did is not go check on things at the house. They didn't go check on, they, they, didn't, they didn't do anything in this world. They just saw the monumental, eternal, spiritual impact that they were called to have on this earth and they immediately obeyed. Number four, Jesus should wholeheartedly, and I would say immediately be obeyed. There's no time to wait. There's no time to wait to witness. There's no time to, to surrender all. There's no time to, to, to give more later. There's, right now, Jesus should wholeheartedly be obeyed. Jesus ascended. He said, go back and wait for me. And whenever I send the promise, whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're baptized, then you will be witnesses. I'm commanding you to be that. You are going to be the impact of, for eternity on this earth. You're going to be my ambassadors. So go and wait until you receive power. So they did. Now the church has had the power of the Holy Spirit in us since that time. We should not delay. We should not question. We should not put off. We should not seek convenience. We should wholeheartedly obey. This morning, if you've placed your life and your faith, your complete reliance in the same Jesus to save you as those first church, those first believers did, you, you've placed your confidence in his forgiveness of your sins, you've confessed him as your Lord, then the responsibility is the same exact responsibility that the apostles had. And our response should be the same exact thing. They were to go when the Holy Spirit empowered them. And they were not to stop until death or his return. That's our heritage as the church of Jesus Christ. And guess what? They all died fulfilling the Great Commission. They all died completely obeying him. Are we given the same diligence and direct obedience to this call? If not, we've got to start acting like the church. We have no excuse. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit if we're saved. So we must go until he comes. A little reminder for this season, and I'm done. If we are in Christ, we must be known for who we represent, Jesus more than who we vote for as Americans. 
We must be passionate for soul justice more than social justice. We must be committed to community over convenience. And we must be fostering unity in the body over fueling fires of division on social media or anywhere else. So when you post, when you have that conversation, when you interact with people, is it clear that you're devoted to Christ? Or is it saying that you're devoted to a cause? If you're here this morning, you're struggling with your eternal fate. I challenge you, before you leave, ask somebody. I want to know about going to heaven. I'm not positive where I'm going to spend eternity. I don't care how long you've claimed to be a Christian, because this is the truth. Eternity is long, and hell is real. But heaven is so worth it. Be assured today of your eternal destiny. And Christians, let's let our commitment as the church in the end surpass the commitment of the church in the beginning. That's what should happen. The anchor leg, us, we should be, we should be running with great passion. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for all that you do and the challenge you give us. We see the church in the very beginning. Lord, as we begin this study in Acts, Lord, help us to grab hold of everything that you want us to grab hold of, but not just grab hold of it, Lord, but allow it to change us if we need to change. Lord, it's just so easy to become lazy spiritually. It's so easy as, as people who are prone to selfishness and pride and even laziness to, to not want to put effort into the things that matter most. Lord, help us not do that. Help us to be diligent to obey. Help us to be passionate to pursue you. Lord, help us be the church that you've called us to be. Lord, help us respond now in the right way. In Jesus' name.